Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. What are the factors that community really sees as priority to improve brain health? These could be things around diet, they could be things around exercise, but we don't know until we actually go to community to ask. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy here and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and for other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. Once again, my friends Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are here with me. We're spread out over the lands of Australia. Marita comes from Victoria, Steph comes from South Australia, and I'm based in New South Wales. So the three of us haven't had a real lot of experience in caring for people from the Torres Strait. No, but as GPs, we're all working hard towards trying to close the health gap inequities that impact First Nations people. With that in mind, we spoke to Dr Eddie Strivens, who's a regional geriatrician and clinical director for older persons, subacute and rehabilitation services in far north Queensland, to get his perspective on 25 years of working in the Torres Strait. I'm really excited to have a listen. Let's go. I've been working with the communities up in the Torres Strait now for for over two decades. I came to Cairns in 1996 for a 12-month job and and 25 years later, I'm I'm still here. And this sort of uh, work that we've been doing with partners in the Torres Strait really dates back to the late 90s and early noughties. At that time, we were doing outreach trips from our um, geriatric services unit here in Cairns and working very closely with partners there. But it was a fly-in, fly-out service, working on partnerships and capacity building, but, but not really embedded on the ground. And we actually found that while working with partners there, there was a real appreciation that some of the diseases of ageing were occurring in increased prevalence in the community there, but there wasn't really either a, a good understanding of them or really a good method of actually assessing and recording them. So we did some work then in, in the late 90s looking at a, a healthy ageing study, and, and that showed that some of our traditional tools that we use, especially for, for looking at things like dementia, really weren't fit for purpose you know, yourself when you're using tools like the, the mini mental state examination, the first 10 questions are all around orientation and, and you often lose people before you actually get into the, the meat of the issue. And some of those problems with assessment tools were really leading us to either under or overestimate the importance of cognitive disorders such as, as dementia in, in First Nations communities. I guess that led to a, a process of actually looking at what the, the right tools might be and using them then to to have a look how common the problem is. So if you look at where we were back in the late 90s, we really didn't know how common dementia was in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across the country. We had various estimations. We knew from some of the work done in Townsville using an unvalidated tool that there was perhaps an increased risk. But if we looked at other First Nation communities across the world, there was a good quality study in in North America suggesting that the the prevalence of dementia was lower in First Nation communities in Canada and the United States. And a lot of this was due to suitable assessment tools. 
what we did from there really was working with partners in the Torres Strait to have a look and see what was around. And this was a, a real case of serendipity at, at the time where I was down in Melbourne for a, a period of time and, and caught up with uh, Dina Lejudici and, and the team down there who'd been working on the Kika or, or Kimberley Indigenous Cognitive Assessment Tool. And working with Dina and, and Kate Smith from the University of Western Australia, combined really with our, our close partnerships with clinical service providers in the Torres Strait. So this is the post-acute rehab and aged care team or PARAC team up in the Torres Strait. We then looked at trialling the Kika in the whole of the far north. So this is Cape York and the Torres Strait. To give you, I guess, a bit of context of where the Torres Strait is, as you know, Cairns is, is in tropical north Queensland and from there the, the area north of Cairns is Cape York and then between the tip of Cape York and the international border with Papua New Guinea is the islands of the Torres Strait, which is 17 populated islands and and uh, four communities in the northern peninsula area, which are very closely linked with the Torres Strait. And in fact, from the most northerly islands of the Torres Strait, you can see the coast of PNG. So a distinct area and an area with its own cultural identity and very much a, an area with a, a mixed Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal community. Working with communities there, we were looking at validating the Kika within our Torres Strait Islander communities. It worked, and after a, a study where we, we validated it across communities in Cape York, Cairns and the Torres Strait, we found that it was a, a tool that accurately detected cognitive impairment and dementia. But one of the issues with the Torres Strait was that it, it spoke more to a, an Aboriginal experience than a, a Torres Strait Islander experience. And some of the pictures were more in keeping with what was needed in mainland Aboriginal communities. So working with partners again there, and I have to stress really what this has all been about has, has been answering questions that have come from community and addressing emerging clinical issues within community. Uh, we looked at uh, adapting some of the pictures and revalidating the tool in the Torres Strait. And once we'd done that, we were then able to work on looking at how common dementia and other diseases of, of ageing are. I think it's probably also worth pointing out at, at this time as well, I'm, I'm really a very much an accidental researcher. I'm a, I'm a full-time clinician that, that's really, I guess, entered into this work to work with our partners to look at answering those emerging clinical issues. And, and the research team yeah. that I'm involved with is very much based around those clinical questions and finding solutions to community problems. I thought it was interesting that you said some of the research before you'd done this validation of this tool, some of the research showed that First Nations people in the US and Canada had a lower levels of prevalence of dementia. Was that because it was their tools weren't validated or is that a difference in the population? I think that's still very much a question that, that, that hasn't been answered. We do think that a lot of it is due to the assessment tools and the, the problems with the assessment tools causing both uh, late presentations under an overdiagnosis, as well as the sort of acceptability of the process of doing a, a study. So the study I'm referring to is, is back in the early 90s from uh, Hendry, and it, it looked at the Cree First Nation. Uh, Well-designed study, but I think validated tools and also whether or not some of the other the risk factors and the strength factors are the same between all First Nations communities. Uh, 
Mm. I mean, again, I, I would defer and our research team is very much made up of both First Nation and non-First Nation referrers. But, but looking at, at the experience of, of ageing in Indigenous communities across the world, that there is definite commonalities there in terms of holistic health and well-being, that maintenance of connection with community, family and country, and also looking at the resilience and uh, the challenges as well and, and those social determinants of health having a real barrier to ageing well and also dementia prevention as well. So this is even looking at things like housing, transport and nutrition. Mm-hmm. So commonality but differences. So I guess a lot of it comes down to kind of health inequalities that some of these populations will be experiencing. But can you tell us a bit about the findings that your research in terms of, you know, once you had developed and validated the tool, what what were some of the findings that you found in terms of the prevalence of dementia in the Torres Strait population? Yeah, so so this the, the prevalence study was really a, a rolling prevalence study over around four years. So we, we started off on Hammond Island and Thursday Island in the Torres Strait. And then as we were able to get some funding and also more interest from other communities and islands in the Torres Strait, we ended up visiting all 17 populated islands in the Torres Strait and all of the four northern peninsula communities. In total, we saw 322 people, of of which 276 of them were Torres Strait Islander or Aboriginal members of the Torres Strait community. And we found that out of those 276, 39 of them had a a formal diagnosis of dementia via this process. So that's around 40%. And this is a group aged 45 and upwards. So this isn't just an older population. This is, is looking at midlife and beyond giving us rates of dementia three times what we'd expect to see on on mainland Australia. And, you know, we talked a little bit about vascular risk. And and one of the things that we do try and do with combining the the research and clinical work is really look at a strengths-based approach rather than the more pejorative risk factor terminology. But, But we did find that there was a strong link with vascular risk factors. So everyone bar one person who had a diagnosis of dementia had at least one vascular risk factor. And in fact, 96% of the overall sample had at least one vascular risk factor. And we were seeing really very high rates of of cerebrovascular disease and chronic kidney disease, as well as uh, risks with diabetes and decreased educational level and significant comorbidity. So it's an increased risk of a, a dementia diagnosis with poor mobility and incontinence as well. And those are, are obviously quality of life issues as, as well as dementia causes. Yeah, increases the kind of disability, you know, and, and especially in a population where the, the health access to other support services is probably reduced in terms of allied health as well. You know, if you're having problems with mobility and incontinence and you can't access the services, that's also then furthering that health inequality, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely, and increasing that burden of disease and the potentially avoidable disability as well. So some of those risk factors that you mentioned are some of the ones that we have become more aware of since the Lancet study that came out last year. And as as I totally agree with you, it's kind of, we need to get away from the, I guess risk isn't the, the best word to use. It's about modifiable, what can we do to help people live a, live a healthier life rather than if you do this you won't get dementia because nothing's going to 
totally prevent you getting dementia. It's just about maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Were there any other independent risk factors outside of those ones that we know from the Lancet study that you noticed in the Torres Strait population or Aboriginal populations that perhaps GPs might not be aware of and need to ask about? I think there is great commonality of risk factors, to tell you the truth. I think our findings were really that those modifiable risk factors are, are pretty much the same. The ones that we found an association with, and again, I'd always caution association versus causality, is chronic kidney disease, which came up as a, a strong associated risk. But again, that's linked with the high prevalence of vascular disease and diabetes generally. As, as I said, we, in, our, in our sample of, over again, people over the age of 45 and, and not with known cognitive impairment prior, we had 65% of them had a diagnosis of hypertension, 62% were diabetic, and I said at least one vascular risk factor in 96% of them. But I think that high prevalence of risk and chronic disease is actually a, a hopeful factor as well as a, a concern because the higher the prevalence of modifiable risk factor, the, the more targets there are for intervention. And we've recently done some work with our research team and one of our PhD candidates, Finton Thompson, um, looking at that Lancet Commission risk factors and looking at, at what's potentially modifiable factors within the Torres Strait. And compared to that 40% figure that the Lancet Commission came up with worldwide, actually, it looks like a higher proportion are, are potentially modifiable in the Torres Strait, anything up to 53%, in fact, of the population attributable risk is to potentially modifiable factors. And, and look, you know, managing hypertension in itself will reduce uh, the prevalence of dementia in the Torres Strait by 10%, diabetes by 10%, obesity by about 6%, hearing by about 5%. But interestingly, and I guess that's, that's sort of looping back to your original question, Steph, about what's different there. Some of the modifiable risk factors that are in higher prevalence in the worldwide population are actually seen as less of an issue in the Torres Strait. And this is one of the big myths. And this is things like alcohol intake, isolation, and actually depression as, as risk factors appear to be less of an issue in the Torres Strait than they are in the overall Lancet Commission figures. And that, again, allows a movement towards that more strengths-based approach and flipping that paradigm of risk into strength. Is that because the populations are more connected with each other? So they have a stronger sense of community and so social isolation isn't so much of an issue? Well, I think that's a, a reasonable hypothesis. And certainly when you look at the international literature on, on what ageing well means, that maintenance of connection to land and people is, is one of the key factors in First Nation peoples worldwide. And, and there's really good work done locally uh, with the Good Spirit Good Life Centre for Research Excellence, which is, is looking at what those factors are in terms of quality of life measurement within uh, First Nation communities as well. It was interesting in some of the work in the Dementia in the Torres Strait survey that we actually found that there was much higher levels of abstinence within the Torres Strait than there would be in the mainland Australia community and drinking to a dangerous level was actually at a lower level within the Torres Strait. 
and alcohol-related dementia was was almost insignificant within the, the Torres Strait as a diagnostic group compared to Alzheimer's disease or dementia not otherwise specified. So, so alcohol certainly within the Torres Strait and also within the, the prevalence studies done uh, in WA and, and New South Wales was not the risk factor that I think mainstream media really comes up with. I think head injury is is a separate issue, and I think head injury is also an evolving issue. We found it wasn't a significant risk factor in the Torres Strait, but the the prevalent studies in WA and New South Wales certainly did find it was an issue, and that's partly as there was a actually a pretty low rate of head injury within the participants in our study. And look, I think there's still a story to be told about the the impacts of chronic or repetitive head injuries and uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy within First Nation communities. But I'd hasten again to say that our single biggest diagnostic group with dementia within the Torres Strait was still Alzheimer's disease of one where a etiology could be defined. And could well be mixed etiology, I guess, as well. Oh, Absolutely. And lower rates of similar kind of population rates of some of the rare reforms like Lewy body and frontotemporal dementia, presumably, they're still, you know, predominantly it's going to be Alzheimer's and, and mixed dementia as, as that's the most common anyway in a population. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Alzheimer's mixed vascular as your top three, but there are a large proportion in our study that are, are classified as dementia, not otherwise specified. And, and that's partly... The nearest CT scanner is in Cairns, uh, as is the nearest MRI yeah. scanner. So, yeah. so yeah. It, it does make neuroimaging difficult, and so the diagnosis is, tends to be through a clinical diagnosis. But we then used a consensus diagnosis methodology in the study as well, so it's independently looked at by specialists. Steph, thanks so much for bringing us that interview. What were your take-home messages from what Eddie was saying during the first part of the interview? Well, I thought it was interesting. Again, I know we talk about this in every episode, but what they really did with that study was they looked at their population and looked to see how best to assess that population. And when they realised that perhaps the tools that they were using weren't going to be um, relevant to that population, they made a change. And I think... You know, that comes back to really making that assessment that you're doing in the context of the person uh, in front of you and, and how, you know, who that person is. Because it, as we've said before, dementia affects everyone in different ways. And so it was interesting to see that they recognised that First Nations people of different countries have a different experience of, of these diseases and also that they needed to, you know, change their assessment tool to reflect that. So I found that very interesting. I was wondering the same thing when Eddie was saying there was less depression, whether the screening tools they used for depression in the Torres Strait had been validated for use on that population. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? And I, But I, it is interesting to think about the way that different communities exist. Like I think one of the problems, you know, I know anyway, I, I'm a I've moved countries, you know, I no longer live where I was brought up and I'm not in my family group, if you like. Whereas if you live in a very small community, maybe just being part of that community means you have more resources 
in terms of social resources that may help you to reduce things like depression whereas you know social isolation and and being distant from family may encourage that so it's interesting to look at it from a epidemiological perspective I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we've had the episode on social prescribing. It sounds like in the Torres Strait, it doesn't need to be prescribed because it's already happening. Marita, what were your uh, impressions of listening to Eddie talking there? The first thing I really loved was the fact that he described himself as an accidental researcher. (laughs) And I thought, aren't we just lucky that he's an accidental researcher? Because again, he's bringing the research together from his clinical point of view for the benefit of not only the people he's researching, but people like us who are are GPs trying to look at ways that we can better work to reduce health inequity. And I really like the fact that he put a real positive spin on the modifiable risk factors as being very hopeful that these are areas that we can target and make a difference. And in fact, that it's a much bigger contribution to their population risk than even for us, which was sort of great. And I liked the way that he talked about working from a strengths-based approach, which I guess is what we all want to try and do as well. And certainly the people that we've interviewed who are living with dementia, that's what they're asking for. And also like how you actually do research in populations. You know, he, he clearly has spent a long time helping develop research in a co-design way. Absolutely. It hasn't been about the researcher going in and studying a population. It's about what does the population want? There has to be an outcome that benefits the population. And so using a population's goals, if you like, to then build research around that is a really amazing approach to research because that's Mm. truly collaborative. Utilising action research, which is great. Mm. Yeah, and he did, he did all of that without using any jargon. He just said it came out of the community. He said that a number of times. The other thing I really liked was how their research myth-busted a little bit. The um, idea that alcohol and head injury and those things that perhaps I might have assumed were bigger risk factors. So I, I was interested to hear that, and I'm keen to see where the interview went from here. So let's have a little bit more of a listen. The things we're currently involved with with partners is around looking at developing a framework for healthy aging within the Torres Strait. So this this is this is a five year project running through now to twenty twenty five, and and really trying to delve into what are those protective factors as well. So so using yarning circles in community to really understand what aging well means to those living on on. Uh, their particular islands or particular communities because again the Torres Strait is a very diverse population it, what's true on on TI or Wyburn won't be the same as it is on Warrabur Island and won't be the same as it is on Murray Island or one of the communities of the uh, of the northern peninsula area so it's, it's it's about we're doing more work with that to then look at interventions as well and, and look at what we can do to improve service delivery related to aging well but it's it's really about delving into what that that shared experience and individual experience of of, of what aging well means to to people living within the Torres Strait. The population that you screened was age forty five and up. I think you said that the three hundred or two hundred and seventy nine people that you screened. That presumably means that people will present earlier 
and a younger age with um, cognitive impairment and dementia, um, as opposed to the um, background metro or kind of Australian population. Is that part of the findings as well, that you found that people were presenting at a younger age? Yes, this is absolutely true. And 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 this is, I guess, one of the important messages, as we said overall, that the, the rate of, of dementia was three times higher in that overall 45 and up population. But but the, the area where there was the biggest difference is, is in that sort of 45 to 55 and 55 to 65 age group where you're seeing really significant increases in the prevalence of cognitive impairment compared to the non-First Nation communities. So, so early, early onset at a younger age. Uh, and again, you know, it, it's linked in, I guess, with that whole of life approach to ageing well and the importance of looking at, at at growing the brain throughout those first thousand days of, of childhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's where it's so important with those modifiable factors of looking at education and looking at hearing health as well and uh, programs such as Deadly Ears and, and looking at maternal and and perinatal nutrition and, and health care, as well as then maintaining and saving the brain through your 20s, 30s and 40s. And, and, and again, looking at what those protective factors, what are the things that mean to, to age well? And aging well doesn't start at 65 or 70. It starts at preconception and needs to be continued throughout life. Yeah. So you need to change your title to a life course clinician because you're really it's about looking after people right from the beginning and I suppose that comes back to as general practitioners these are things that we should be thinking of it's not you know by the time you hit 45 it's too late we we need to be thinking about you know encouraging all of those things good and bad you know absolutely and if we if we look at those factors as well Steph is is you know, there's there's almost no downside to them. You know, the stuff that helps your brain, helps your heart, helps your kidneys, and helps your pancreas. So, it, it, it's not like any of these 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 lifestyle interventions come with with a cost elsewhere to your health. But they really need to be developed as what are the priorities within those individual communities, and that's that's what we're doing for that framework of of aging well and and also work we're looking at dementia risk reduction generally in uh, aboriginal and torres strait islander communities and and that's what's what's so important to look at what are the factors that community really sees as as a priority to improve brain health mm-hmm. these could be things as around diet they could be things around exercise, but we don't know until we actually go to community to ask what those priorities are. And it's, that's the important thing with any of the yarning circle methodology is not to come into it with preconceived ideas of what you're going to do, but what is the important strength factors within that community. Yeah, it was a very detailed study. I, I was interested to know whether or not that sort of investigative, you know, screening and um, questioning and then co- correlating that with another um, specialist review of that had been done in any other populations because it seems so extensive, the work that you did in that population to identify. Um, you know, we don't really do screening of populations for dementia. It's one of the things we don't do. 
really, the uh, the interest in this has very much come from community, and we we now have six First Nation researchers working with the team. We've got very close connections with the the, the clinical community, and and provide ongoing clinical service delivery, and that that. Questions about dementia and, and aging really came from community rather than something that was imposed. That's positive as well, isn't it? That the that a community wants to know more because that's one of the issues that that there is broadly. Um, you know that we find one of the barriers is that sometimes people don't want to know about it. So I think I was just going to ask a bit more about any sort of further resources and uh, that GPs might find useful to find out more about some of those rural and remote populations. There's some really, really good resources out there for, for GPs to access. And, and one of the, uh, the other projects we've been involved with is a, a, around uh, Let's Chat um, Dementia, which is is led out of the University of Melbourne and, and Dina down there. And, and some of the resources developed for that have been specifically around resources for general practitioners. So uh, easy to find. You just Google Let's Chat Dementia and you'll find it will take you straight to it. And in there, there's GP management plan recommendations that can be used, as well as a, a best practice guide to cognitive impairment and dementia care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending primary care. Uh, uh, so, so really very, very good resources for GPs to use. In terms of training resources, um, Dementia Training Australia has, has sponsored a numbers of, number of webinars out of Let's Chat as well, where members of the team from across the country in, in remote and very remote as well as urban communities have, have um, given webinars on different aspects of, of dementia and, and brain health. And there's also some really good video resources out of the University of Western Australia and the Harry Perkins Institute there, which can give you sort of a practical guide on, on how to administer some of the tools. We talked before about the, the Kika. The Kika has been validated uh, really across the top end of Australia through uh, uh, Northern WA, through the Northern Territory and ourselves in far north Queensland, but also in urban communities in, in Sydney for the, as part of the KGAUS study. It's a more useful tool, I, I think, for more rural and remote um, communities. And again, it's about tailoring the tool for the individual in front of you and, and looking at what one is going to be both appropriate and useful in those circumstances. And even uh, the Kika screen, which is the, the shorter version, has been validated by our team for use in a telehealth setting. Marita, I saw a big smile on your face when Eddie was talking about a whole-of-life approach to ageing well, and I know your maternal child health nurse background would have been singing and zinging to hear those words. Yeah, I really like how Steph um, said to him, I think you called him a life... Life course clinician. Life course clinician, because, I mean, it's just so true, though, isn't it? If you don't fix the first thousand days of life or address the issues there, and as you said, preconception, how can you really be promoting a healthy ageing? And I guess it also made me think about air pollution being one of the modifiable risk factors also, and that really, as GPs, that's something that, you know, we should also be proactive about not 
telling GPs they have to go and do anything. But I guess for me as a GP, I feel like it's something um, that's close to my heart and something to be very proactive about as well, you know, in, in the um, climate change crisis that we're dealing with. Um, it's it, it's so important to, you know, speak up. Mm. Mm. Mm, exactly. Um, Steph, uh, Eddie mentioned quite a number of screening tools that he and his team have used for research purposes. I'm just wondering what your thoughts were, because we speak a lot in our podcasts about screening tools not being diagnostic tools, and how might apply some of the principles that Eddie was talking about into the actual diagnostic process clinically for First Nations people. What, what as GPs can we do beyond using a screening tool to the whole person approach to making a diagnosis? Well, actually, although he was talking about using screening tools, he did also make reference to the fact that the work that they do in the Torres Strait, obviously they have less access to tests. So it ends up being more of a clinical diagnosis. And I think that's what we have to remember, actually, making a diagnosis of dementia, nearly all of it is based on the history that you take from the person or from a collateral history. So I think leaving aside the fact that we have these other supportive cognitive screening tests, we should still be trying to get as much information as we can about that person and and how things have changed for them. I guess it's about going back to, yeah, a, a really good history, perhaps using, again, as most of it's going to be Alzheimer's disease and vascular, that means that the symptoms are going to be very similar to the ones that we talk about in all of our education. So thinking about things in terms of the frameworks that we use and using that to really, you know, ask your questions around that, but relevant to that person's background. So I'm just wondering if you've got any other take-home messages or thoughts as a result of the interview with Eddie, Steph? I guess my only other thing that I would be thinking in relation to general practice is like we've talked about the 45 to 49 year old health check I guess this is another reminder that there are a whole lot of health checks for people from indigenous populations and they're there for a reason because some of these health problems might present earlier and so perhaps looking at some of the resources that he mentioned through Let's Chat and using that in your practice if you do have a population that's more reflective of of perhaps some of the populations he was talking about. Yeah, they look like they're actually pretty good resources. I guess a big take-home throughout all of that, which I think we've made reference to, but I'll just say as a sort of final note for me, is the importance of asking people what ageing well means to them (laughs) because it means different things to different people. And only by asking can we work out, you know, how we might develop a plan that's going to be consistent with how they can age well. I think the thing that stays with me is using a let's chat approach and yarning. And that's kind of what we do on Dementia in Practice on our podcast. The thing that I love about it the most is that we have a yarn and we have a chat and there is so much learning that comes from that, both for me as a presenter, but hopefully for our listeners as well. So uh, I really enjoyed this interview, Steph. Thanks for bringing Eddie into our little circle of conversation. 
And talking about yarning, we had a yarn in a previous episode with Professor Sharon Naismith about sleep. Well, Sharon's joining us again in our next episode because we want to find out a little bit more about the role of a clinical neuropsychologist and how they can work with us as GPs as we help people to live well with dementia. Sounds great, Hilton. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au GP or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or you can find us at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. See you all next time. If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or a carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.